My name is Julian Willard. And I'm Jim Mack, and this is Pineal Express, where trains of thought intersect. If you like Pineal Express, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash pinealexpress. At various levels of support, our patrons receive extra episodes of the show and other bonus content. Blockchain is a kind of tamper-resistant digital ledger. The ledger stores data in groupings called blocks. What data gets stored in the blocks depends on what the blockchain is being used for, whether it's to transfer digital currency, or to store and distribute other transaction information like real estate or medical records and so on. Also stored in the blocks is an encrypted digital fingerprint, or hash, that identifies the block and what data is inside it. Each newly generated block also contains the previously generated block's digital fingerprint such that the blocks can be sequentially linked or chained together, hence the term blockchain. Tampering with the data inside any block within the chain is therefore difficult, in part because such tampering would constitute an alteration of the block's digital fingerprint, thereby risking the unlinking of the block and the breaking of the chain. One major benefit of blockchain is that the generation or mining of such blocks and their distribution is decentralized. So it would be unlikely that any one entity could control the blockchain network, given that the network is supposed to be comprised of many individual users, or peers. Blockchain technology gained more visibility due to Bitcoin, a blockchain cryptocurrency originally developed by a mysterious figure who went by the name Satoshi Nakamoto. Attention to Bitcoin reached its height in 2017 and 2018 as its value in dollars grew rapidly and then crashed. Other cryptocurrencies have also seen ups and downs, such as Ethereum, the second largest cryptocurrency and blockchain network after Bitcoin. Blockchain is a tool. Like any tool, it could be used for public benefit or for harm. But if we want to cultivate pro-social uses for blockchain, more people will need to understand what it is and how it works. That's why we talked to Sumia Basu. Sumia is a computer science PhD student who researches blockchain at Cornell University. Sumia is also the co-founder and chief technology officer of BlocksRoute, a distribution network meant effectively to increase blockchain's number of transactions per second. So, without further delay, welcome! Sumia Basu to Pineal Express. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Sumia, what is a layman's description of blockchain? Blockchain is a way for many people who don't trust each other to agree on something. So you can think of it as like if you and your bingo buddies all want to get together and agree on who won the game. But you might think that one or two of them may cheat, but not not a huge fraction of them will cheat. That's, in general, a use case for blockchain. So you can imagine these kinds of things happening in the real world as well, with many companies getting together or banks getting together in consortium chains. In Bitcoin and Ethereum, which is probably the context you've heard of this, you have a bunch of miners who get together and construct the Bitcoin blockchain. I think at its core, to me, it's all about decentralizing trust. One of the virtues of blockchain technology is it is a decentralized network. And that's where some of this trust comes from, because it's not centralized in one uh, tightly held network that one entity can control. And so what is it about that decentralization that 
promotes uh, the kind of trust that you are referring to? It's because you can think of it as you might have one or two bad actors in a system. So if you're looking at Bitcoin, where all the miners come together, you can have maybe some of the miners being untrustworthy, right? And maybe they want to undermine the system, right? But the reason decentralization and and this notion of trust comes in is that you would need a large fraction of the miners wanting to corrupt the system in order to actually bring it down. So it's essentially, it's not that you trust everyone in the system, it's that you trust that no more than some threshold will be bad at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of where decentralization comes in. And I think this is something that you can look at, for example, if you imagine like say the banking system, if there's many banks who are coming together, well, if a third of your banking system or if a third of the banks are corrupt, um, then you don't really have much of a banking system, regardless of what your blockchain technology does. So it, but it prevents things from having one rogue bank going out and doing something and being unaccountable. That makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And let me know if I understand this correctly. So suppose, say, the the credit card system is to be corrupted, right? Like, let's say Visa does something nefarious in its system and manipulates transactions in such a way that's advantageous to them, theoretically, right? Yeah, yeah. If they were to do that, they would have a lot of control over their network because they own their own network and could theoretically do something like that. Now, obviously, there's some regulation in place that would would make that unlikely, um, but in theory, they would have that capability, whereas in a, a decentralized network, like sending money through... A blockchain technology, like transferring Bitcoins, for instance, mm-hmm. um, it would take, as you mentioned, a large part of uh, a, a large number of individual actors in this decentralized system to be able to coordinate and to do something nefarious. And I, I also believe, and, and let me know if I'm wrong about this, but I also believe that if that were to happen, that would be evident to the rest of the network because it's an open system. Is that right? The first part you said of you need a a large portion of people to coordinate, that's completely right. Without a large fraction, you can't do the types of corruption that, say, Visa could do unilaterally on their network. Um, For the second part where you said that it would be evident to other people on the network, um, it kind of depends on the attack. So there are certain types of attacks which it would be evident to people on the network. There are other kinds of attacks which it might not be obvious to everyone on the network. So let me give you an example here. Sure. If someone, for example, tries to do a double spend attack. So a double spend attack is where I try and send you money. I convince you that, yeah, the I sent you the money. It's on the blockchain. It can't be reversed. But then I go ahead and rewrite the blockchain so that it gets reversed. Well, if someone's paying attention, they'll be able to see that double spend attack because they'll see all of those blocks that were mined, right? They can see, okay, I tried to spend it here and then I created a new chain where I unspent it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, a double spend attack is in some sense easier to detect because you can see it happening. There's another kind of attack where suppose a miner just decided, you know, I don't want Sumia to be able to send Pineal Express any money whatsoever. So anytime it sees a transaction that involves me sending money to you, the miner just never includes it on the chain. There's no real 
like it, it's very hard to prove that the miner is actually doing something bad here. Um, you can start you can start asking questions and things, but it, it becomes hard to sort of definitively show that something bad happened. So in some sense, it's kind of like it, it really depends on the kind of attack that you're looking at, whether it's easily detectable or not. And that latter sort of attack, what are blockchain companies and blockchain developers doing in order to guard against that? Um, so we see a tremendous amount of infrastructure actually being built. So if you, say, start watching all of the transactions right, that are being sent around mm-hmm. and you see, well, this transaction has a very high fee attached to it, but the miners aren't taking it for five, six, seven blocks, then you kind of get into the situation where, well, it's kind of suspicious now, right? Like right. maybe this miner, maybe the miners aren't doing the right thing. This problem is called censorship. Of a transaction, um, in general, how Bitcoin or blockchains deal with it is by having many, many miners. So, if you have, say, twenty different kinds of miners, right? Sure, maybe one miner doesn't like a particular transaction, so they're not going to include it in their block, but the next miner will, right? Mm-hmm. So, by rotating miners, um, that's generally how how blockchain systems deal with it. But then again, it's not ideal, I think. So it sounds like decentralization of miners is one of the things that, that helps in this system as well. Um, and, and so it's, it's very evident that block, one of the virtues of blockchain, one of the reasons people use it is because of that decentralization. But I wanted to ask about what are the disadvantages from a technological perspective of decentralization generally? There's actually quite a bit. And I think in terms of the disadvantages the current financial infrastructure actually has a lot of safeguards built in, right? So, for example, if my credit card gets stolen and someone decides to buy something something with it, I can dispute it and the credit card companies are pretty good about saying, all right, well, if this was a fraudulent transaction, we're going to cancel it. Mm-hmm. In Bitcoin, if someone steals your private key and sends money to another account that they own, there's no bank you can go to and say, hey, this is a fraudulent transaction. Can you reverse it? So in some sense, like, I think there's a lot of the traditional financial infrastructure that you do put trust in and you get some usability benefits out of it that don't really exist in blockchain. I think these are problems that are being worked on, though. They're not sort of fundamental limitations. But I think this is, I think, a gap that currently exists, which is actually why I wouldn't recommend everyone to go use Bitcoin and blockchain, even though I think it is a very, very cool technology. Okay. And uh, Sumia, we've been talking in this conversation a bit about blockchain mining. So I want to ask you, what is blockchain mining? How do you define it? Okay. So blockchain mining has different forms in different kinds of systems. Let's talk about what you're probably thinking of when you think first of blockchain mining, which is in Bitcoin and Ethereum. What blockchain mining essentially does is your computer does a little bit of work. And in doing that work, what it's doing is it essentially grabs into a bag of lottery tickets and pulls one out. And it needs to compute some stuff to do that. So it spends a little bit of electricity, a little bit of energy. There's a little bit of wear on your device. And in return, you get that lottery ticket. Now, that lottery ticket may be a winner or it may be a loser. If it's a loser, you discard it and you go back into the bag, right? So your computer does that again. And then so your computer will sort of keep doing it until it finds one that's a winner. 
when it finds one that's a winner, that's what people mean when they say you've mined a block, right? You found a lottery ticket that's a winner. And once you've mined a block, you tell everyone else well, what the winning lottery ticket number was. And then that block gets added to the Bitcoin blockchain. So the act of pulling out lottery ticket is what's known as hashing. Um, in particular, in Bitcoin, you're using a SHA-256. Um, but that's just the name of the hash function. So, so, so that's what mining looks like in Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, in proof-of-stake systems, your mining essentially is you, instead of pulling out this lottery ticket over and over again, what you do instead is you tell sort of a system how much money you have. And obviously I'm painting with a very, very broad brush here. The exact details will vary on the implementation. Right. But for proof of stake, how it works is, is everyone tells the system how much money they have and which coins they own. The system will say whoever owns coin number 20, or they'll pick a random coin, is the one who mines the next block. So then whoever owns coin number 20 will get to, will tell everyone else what the block is. They'll sign it with proof that they own, actually, they actually do own that coin. And then that's how the next block will get mined in proof of stake systems. And essentially, I think that's how you can think of mining in proof of work, proof of stake systems. But yeah, I think that's sort of a, at a high level how mining works. And you say it's a cool technology. We've been talking about banking and cryptocurrency. What is blockchain used for besides cryptocurrency? Um, so I'm not sure about the status of like the of current deployments. But I've heard of use cases being explored in supply chain and healthcare. And fundamentally, what you're looking at is is not like I, I think fintech is sort of the hot example because of Bitcoin and Ethereum and you have cryptocurrencies. Right. So it's very obvious to see the parallel to our current fintech infrastructure. But in general, whenever you have a trusted middleman that you're relying on, mm -hmm. I think that's an opportunity for blockchain to come in and decentralize that, right? So I think in supply chain, you need a lot of middlemen to ensure quality control and um, and ensure that, like, for example, the number of things going that are being sent to a particular company is actually being received by that company. And like, for example, someone in the middle didn't take out a cut or something. And and these kinds of things are, are things that, that blockchain can help with and bring some accountability into the system so that you don't need inspectors on the entire line. And exactly how this would work, I'm not quite sure yet, but I think I, I think there's a lot of premium that people pay for trust that blockchain can help reduce. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've heard blockchain referred to as, uh, in, in simplified terms, as a sort of secure ledger. And yep. uh, so that would make sense to me that in supply chains, uh, provided that the information going in at the beginning and coming out at the end is trustworthy, then all those middle steps carrying through could potentially also be trustworthy um, in a decentralized fashion rather than having 
you know, products being shipped through one agency, through another agency, processed through another agency, and each of those particular agencies in the middle are behind a veil of like corporate secrecy or or potentially government secrecy. Uh, for that to be decentralized, uh, it does make sense that it could potentially be used in sort of tracking what's going on uh, in global supply chains. And healthcare mm-hmm. would also be that is also an interesting thing. I mean, we have health documents and health uh, information that's being written up in our system through very many different providers and uh, that I hadn't even thought about that before but that's very interesting that that sort of a ledger could uh, potentially be made decentralized in part of it through blockchains yeah and 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 I think actually like I think the uh, to me as a researcher in this space I think the big thing that I care about is um is sort of the the tech aspect of this where it's like you're decentralizing trust but even if you look at healthcare I think one compelling application I've heard is even just having access to a shared database is very, very useful. Mm-hmm. Like in, in, um, it, like for me personally, I, I've moved around a bunch of times and just physically bringing the health records over from my old doctor to my new doctor has been kind of annoying. Yeah. And, and having just a shared ledger among all the hospitals would m- make that much more useful but then now there's obviously an issue with like privacy and everything that needs to be solved. But I think you can clearly see the promise here, um, even if it's not a totally public ledger like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Yeah, what do you think about potentially for voting? For voting, so again, I think blockchain solves some problems and not others. Mm-hmm. So blockchain can do things like it'll give you an accountable log of what happened after the fact so if someone says that x person didn't vote or y person did vote it can give you kind of a log at the end of the day um there's a lot of problems with voting that get more complicated with blockchain so i'm not entirely sure if blockchain is a win and i think my friends that are more like that have more expertise in the eve voting space have been a little reticent about using blockchain but I know that there is some effort going into that space in voting. So I'm kind of excited to see what comes out. Mm-hmm. And Sumia, so I noticed that you co-authored a paper pointing out that Ethereum nodes are more decentralized than Bitcoin nodes are. Um, and the Bitcoin mm-hmm. network uh, that paper mentions is more clustered together geographically than Ethereum. And many of its nodes are apparently clustered in data centers. So my question, to what extent, if at all, does it concern you that powerful, well-financed actors could centralize significant portions of a blockchain network and thereby exert substantial control over it by building these kinds of node-rich data centers? The physical centralization of Bitcoin and Ethereum that you mentioned from that paper is a problem. But I think actually the biggest issue that that paper pointed out was the fact that mining is so centralized, mm-hmm. right? Because if, if you look at both Bitcoin and Ethereum, if you talk to the top 20 miners, right, by mining power, you basically control the whole ledger, right? So that's not that many entities. So I think this whole concept of these decentralized networks aren't as decentralized as we think they are um, is definitely something that we're starting to see, especially as these networks start getting bigger and more popular. And we see these points of centralization emerging. 
Now, I think a lot of people who will use this to say, oh, blockchain is a failed experiment are also misguided because I think there's a whole new batch of protocols coming out. So we're seeing things like proof of stake systems come out. So some of the more recent works is like um, a Thundercore, there's Algorand, there's Avalanche. And I think these protocols have the potential to be more decentralized than Bitcoin and Ethereum are today. And I don't think the cryptocurrency networks of tomorrow are going to look like the ones that we see today. But I think as you pointed out in that paper, we saw that we're quite a bit away from sort of the decentralized future that we were promised. And, and I think there's still, there's still quite a bit of work to be done in order to get there. That is an interesting point. And you mentioned that there are very few kind of top miners in both Bitcoin and Ethereum, for instance. And uh, so I'm curious to know, and I realized a lot of the mining is meant to be anonymous, right? It's meant to be where you can't necessarily, you don't necessarily know who's doing the mining, but mm-hmm. I'm curious to know if you know what sorts of entities might possess the enormous degree of computing power it would take in order to be a top miner in say Bitcoin or Ethereum. So in terms of who actually possesses the computing power, there's a few mining companies that possess a lot of the hash power. Mm-hmm. Um, there's cloud mining and things where people can rent hash power that someone else owns and get some of the proceeds that way. But I mean, if you're looking at, I, I, I forgot what the names are, but uh, I know there's Bitmain, um, there's Slushpool, via BTC. Like these are fairly large mining operations whose sole purpose is to mine Bitcoin. So I think the picture that you should have of a Bitcoin miner is less like an ant miner that's hunting in your home versus like a large data center of professionally managed, professionally run miners that are cranking out these SHA-256 hashes and producing and and essentially mining new Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, yeah, and I think in terms of where they tend to be, I think currently at least they tend to be in places where power is cheap. And I think that's where we see a lot. So I think there's some in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. There's some, I believe, in China. Um, in China, there's quite a bit of hash power, but we haven't also seen like sort of state sponsored attacks on Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything yet. So I'm sure um, if like, for example, the US government really wanted to, they could probably attack Bitcoin as it is today. So Sumia, uh, you mentioned that the next generation of blockchain technology will have design features that uh, will make it more decentralized, make it more difficult for the amount of centralization in mining that we're seeing to take place. Um, will will those measures also take care of the problem of uh, the fact that the more Bitcoins, let's say, that are mined or the more Ethereum gas that is mined, that's the low-hanging fruit and it becomes much more difficult for people to mine extra ones as it goes on. Is, is that still going to be the case in some of these next-generation Bitcoin networks that you're imagining? So the thing is, I was talking primarily about the consensus protocol. Um, So by consensus protocol, I mean, so like, so, okay, so if we go back to sort of the very beginning of the podcast where I talked about decentralizing trust, Mm -hmm. right? Um, There's different ways to, to decentralize it. So you can look at, so if you look at sort of classical 
a protocol. So, so these are like back in the 2000s. The way it was decentralized was you had an identity associated with each person, right? So if you had 10 people coming together to form a blockchain, each person was assigned a unique identity. Um, and then that's how you made the blockchain. But in Bitcoin and Ethereum, the way it's decentralized is by using this hash power, right? So um, it's whoever has more hash power that that's how much vote they have essentially in the network. Um, these next generation protocols, these proof of stake protocols is whoever has how much coin gets that much power in the network. So that's what I was talking about with sort of how decentralized trust is. Mm -hmm. Um, what you're particularly asking about is a different question entirely, which is the, mo the monetary policy. So in Bitcoin, there's 21 million Bitcoins and that's it, right? Yep. A after that many are mined, there will not be any new Bitcoin ever. Mm -hmm. That's how Bitcoin is designed. Ethereum, I think, is a little more fluid. I think you get five ETH in every, um, in every block that's mined. Um, so... Ethereum has a small inflation rate. Um, what these new next-gen protocols do, I'm not entirely sure. There might be some inflation rate. There might just be a, a fixed payout. And it's kind of unclear what they're going to do and what the right answer is. But I think these are two orthogonal questions in terms of how decentralized will sort of the mining operation be versus how does the monetary policy come into play. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. I wanted to zoom out a little bit. Uh, what are your thoughts on the impact that blockchain networks, especially Bitcoin, have had on the price of computer parts worldwide? I think this depends on which things you're talking about. So I think there is a um, so as Bitcoin gets harder and harder to mine, different things become more or less profitable. So, for example, way back when Bitcoin sort of first started, you could mine on your laptop, right? You could do CPU mining. That was fine for the first few years. Then essentially, as more people got into it, it's not economical to mine on CPUs anymore. Mm. That's what CPU mining looks like. And we didn't really notice that in sort of the increase in CPU prices, because at that point, cryptocurrencies were not really that big, right? We were talking about 2009, 2010, 2011. Then I think the next generation, you're looking at GPU mining, right? So you're, you're going on graphics cards. And I think you're looking at sort of, I think for most cryptocurrencies nowadays, they're looking at GPU mining and specialized ASICs. So ASICs are like, for example, if you're mining Bitcoin, you have to use an ASIC. GPUs are no longer economical. If you're mining smaller cryptocurrencies, you can use you can still use uh, um, a GPU mining. So that's where we see sort of the inflation of these prices going on. But I think in general, I kind of don't like the fact that we have to talk about using all of this power, right? Because at the end of the day, it's a bunch of energy usage that's not really being used to do anything useful. Right. Um, it's just computing lots of SHA hashes. Um, in that sense, I'm not really that excited about the the high prices and this is actually why i'm kind of looking forward to these next generation protocols because i think if you're looking at something like proof of stake one of the things i really i really like about it is that you don't have to buy like these giant asic farms in order to mine on this cryptocurrency you can just 
buy and hold the coin and prove that you own the coin. So it's much more green. Um, so I'm hoping that the inflation of prices on, especially on, on like on, on graphics cards is a very temporary thing that's caused by the cryptocurrency industry, not something that we'll see in the next five or 10 years. Mm-hmm. Somewhat on that topic, what are some of the biggest political and philosophical objections to blockchain technology? And how do you respond to those objections? Generally, what I've seen is they're sort of the diehard proponents of blockchain who may pitch it as sort of a panacea to every problem ever. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. And there's also the opponents who are saying, oh, I think a blockchain doesn't solve anything useful, which also isn't true, right? I think a blockchain does a few things very, very well, which is this decentralization of trust. And I think along with this ride, we're seeing advances being made in a bunch of related fields in order to get this technology to market, right? Zero-knowledge proofs are being deployed. Zcash is a production zero-knowledge proof system. And this is kind of, this is pretty amazing. Like such advanced cryptography is not something that we've seen being used in production so quickly. We see advances in distributed systems. There are new consensus protocols coming out, new families of consensus protocols coming out. We've seen innovations at the network layer, right, like with Falcon and Blockstrout. So I think the fact that blockchain is able to solve this notion of decentralized trust and able to bring this notion to bear actually pulls along a lot of other technologies with it as well. So I think in that sense, it's super, super, super exciting. But I think there's sort of a you, you you have to be careful kind of on both sides to not dismiss it entirely, but not say it solves everything either. So I think you have kind of the two extremes that are kind of like talking across each other a little bit. And, and, and in general, I think those two extremes tend to be sort of the loudest voices that you hear as well. Right. Yeah, that does make sense. So, yeah, I've definitely heard proponents of blockchain technology talking about this is going to be used everywhere and it's sort of a panacea. And I've also heard people say that blockchain technology is inherently a bad thing. Um, So I wanted to talk to you about that Mm -hmm. latter opinion that's out there. How do you respond to people's objections when they say the problem with one of the problems of blockchain is it's going to allow people to hide money and launder money or do illegal things, you know, in a, in a difficult to trace manner. I know it's, it's rumored that Nakamoto himself was a, uh, whoever it is, was a libertarian and wanted to use blockchain technology for like a political libertarian purpose. What's mm-hmm. your argument against those sorts of objections that it kind of lets people duck taxes or government regulation, lets people hide money nefariously? Yeah. yeah so so I think whenever I've heard this kind of argument, um, and and I think this is this gets slightly like into political like arguments as well. Generally, any technology that brings people privacy and brings people more functionality can also be used to do nefarious things. You get both the good and the bad, right? So in some sense, like cash, for example, people use cash to launder money as well. So. Do we ban cash? Well, no, right? Like there's there's things that you can do to try and stop that. And I think that there are, for example, blockchain companies like Chainalysis, which are looking at sort of how are Bitcoins moving and things like that. So I think you have sort of the good and the bad that come along with blockchain technology. And I think it's up to people 
who are working on building this next generation of technologies to figure out how do we mitigate the bad as much as possible. But yeah, like inherently, if you allow for things like privacy, people are going to be using it to do bad things. People are also going to be using it to do good things. And I think where exactly you fall in that spectrum kind of depends on your political beliefs. And I think going again on one extreme or the other again, I think is not the right call. And I think we need to think carefully about what the right balance is. But I think just dismissing a technology based on its potential for allowing people to do bad is not really like it. Like I think that would stop most of the technologies that we've come to take for granted and that are going to be built in the future. That's an excellent point. Yeah. I mean, merely because a system can be used to increase privacy, that doesn't mean that the system itself is inherently bad, right? It depends on what you use it for. Um, you mentioned yeah. cash as an example. That's a great example. And you could also think of encrypted texting or yeah. uh, proxy servers, you know, anything that can boost privacy could be used for nefarious purposes, but that's not an argument against privacy per se. Yeah, and and yeah, and and, and I think actually, like, even if you look at not privacy, right? Like, let's look at Facebook. Say Facebook or Twitter, right? On one hand, social media is great. It lets me stay in contact with people I haven't seen in a while. If I need to get in touch with family across the world, it makes it very easy to do that. On one hand, it's super powerful and super helpful that way. On the other hand, it lets people so discord into communities, right? So, like, there's the whole, like, alleged Russia interference into the U.S. elections. And, sure, it, it can enable that kind of behavior as well. So is the answer to that, then don't use Facebook and Twitter and let's just ban the Internet? Um, I don't think that's the answer, right? I think the answer is a little more careful than that, right? And you can't just thoughtlessly say, because this technology has the potential to do something bad, we're going to get rid of it entirely. It has to be sort of the right response to sort of mitigate the bad and leverage the good in the technology. That makes sense. So did the 2018 Bitcoin crash affect your research in any way? No, because the boom and bust of the market will exist, I think, for any technology that's well-hyped, right? I think the 2017 boom was kind of crazy, like the prices went up way too fast. A correction was bound to come at some point. In terms of the tech that's coming out and the use cases that are being explored and the brain power that's coming into this space, I've definitely seen it increasing. So in that sense, like the market bust hasn't really affected the agenda that much. That being said, it is kind of nice not to answer as many questions about price and about, oh, should I get into Bitcoin or things like that? So in, in that sense, it's kind of been almost a welcome thing in, in terms of the in terms of the bust. But I, I think in the long run, I'm very bullish about the impact of the technology. And I think in terms of the research that's being done, it's very exciting, very foundational research in this space and, and figuring out how to bring these technologies to market is something that will still take a couple more years to do. And I think we're not going to see the full promise of blockchain realized until then. So Sumia, are you comfortable telling us, uh, and if not, let us know, but are you comfortable telling <laughs> us which cryptocurrencies you personally own? Um, actually don't think I own any. Yeah, I don't own any cryptocurrencies except for obviously I'll own some Blockstrap token once those get released. 
But yeah, I haven't really invested in them. I just don't, I don't want the stress of thinking about like how the market is going to behave. I really enjoy the tech and I'm in it for discovering new things and having impact. I think for me, I've never really gotten into sort of the market stuff. And also the most important reason behind not owning the cryptocurrencies is this way I'm not biased towards any particular one or any particular design. It's not like I, I look at Bitcoin and I'm like, oh, Bitcoin must be the right design. And there's a monetary incentive for me to say that, right? Mm-hmm. It's just I look at whichever design makes the most sense. Um, and I can say that this is the one that makes the most sense. And I know that there's no monetary COI against that. But I mean, but I think if ever that changes, that's something I would announce on my Twitter or, or, or my webpage. So you would remain unbiased uh, in your research with respect to those coins. And uh, but you did mention, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are the CTO of BlocksRoute. Is that right? Yes, the CTO and co-founder of BlocksRoute. And so you will eventually have some cryptocurrency from BlocksRoute. Um, can of you course, talk yes. to Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, what BlocksRoute is and w- what the advantages of it will be? BlocksRoute is the next generation network layer for cryptocurrencies. So. Um, when I talked about mining earlier in the program, it was once you mine a block, you have to send it out to everyone else to let them know what that is. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, if you can do that more quickly, you can actually stuff more transactions in the block. Right. So the idea behind BlockShout is let's make that operation of sending out blocks very, 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 very fast. And if we can do that, we can actually now scale instead of having, say, three transactions per second in Bitcoin, we can have 3,000 transactions per second, like in PISA. So I think that's, I think, the core behind what makes BlockShot cool. Um, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of interesting tech because if you're not careful about how you design this network, you can actually end up recreating a centralized system like PISA. So... We have this notion of provable neutrality, um, which basically allows you to use the network to get your performance to sort of push the thousands of transactions per second on it without actually trusting the network like you would trust Visa. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of cool in that regard. Um, and it is, I think, the right way to do the network layer for cryptocurrencies. So, yeah. And so do I understand it correctly? It's kind of like a, a centralized relay network on top of a decentralized system where the centralized part of it is only increasing the efficiency of the transactions overall. Is that correct? Um, Yes. The only small change I would make to your explanation is instead of saying uh, just centralized, I would say centralized, but trustless. So you're centralized. So basically you're getting the benefits of the performance of a centralized system without the downside of having to trust the centralized system. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think that's sort of the key insight behind what makes BlockShot cool. Because the part that you would need to trust is still the decentralized part of the network. Is that right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Exactly. So Sumia, uh, here's our last question for you. Where can people find you? Uh, you mentioned you have a Twitter. I know you have a webpage as well. If people are more interested in your work or more interested in blockchain generally, where's the best way to find you? 
Yeah, so on Twitter, I'm Sumia B8, so S-O-U-M-Y-A-B and the number eight. Um, that's, my, that's my Twitter handle. That's probably the most up-to-date out of everything. I'm also on the web at sumiabasu.com, so S-O-U-M-Y-A-B-A-S-U.com, and that's where you can find most of my academic works. There's links to all of my social media and stuff at the bottom of that page. So you can you can find me, I think, on Twitter, um, Google Scholar, I think maybe a couple of other things as well. But it's all on my it's all on my page. Well, Sumia, uh, it's been fun. It's been informative. Uh, we think yeah, there's too little discussion about blockchain in uh, in the type of academic podcast like this that we do. And so we really wanted to get that information out there. And you've been really great at explaining it uh, in a way that lay people can understand. So thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for having me. It's great seeing this podcast. Thank you so much. We'd like to thank Jamie Willard for providing background music. You can find more of his music on YouTube. We'd also like to thank Adam Schultz for the Pineal Express logo. If you like Pineal Express, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash pinealexpress and consider pledging your support in exchange for patron rewards, including extra show episodes and content. If you can't pledge your support, please consider giving us a positive rating and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to our patrons at the Conscious Conductor level of support. Patrons like you, Tara Lee, Harris Hajiabdij, and Megan Ryan, helped to keep Pineal Express running.